Well, brethren, would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Psalm 21. And before we read this particular text, let us turn to the Lord and ask for His enlightening power upon us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come as a needy people to hear the words of life. And You alone have them. Lord, we pray that You would make our hearts tremble before Your Word. Strengthen us with what You give. May You, the God of endurance and encouragement that we find here in the Word, lift our hearts, cheer our souls, enlighten our eyes, cause us to rejoice in Your truth. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, would you stand as we hear the Word of God read? And just for a moment to knock the chill off. Psalm 21, hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in Your strength. We will sing and praise Your power. Well, thus far, God's holy word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, as we continue tonight to march our way through book one of the Psalter, we come to a unique psalm here in Psalm 21 because Psalm 21 is a companion piece. It's a Double album, we might say, like the Beatles' white album. Because Psalm 21 comes in tandem with Psalm 20. You remember perhaps in the previous psalm, as Pastor John walked us through it, that King David and the nation were on the verge of a battle. And with the war in view, David taught Israel to pray that Yahweh, the prayer-hearing, answering God, who is our rock, our help, our support, would receive our worship and fulfill the plans for victory. And there was a confident hope that the covenant God who had previously drawn nigh to His people would do so again in triumph, that He would bear His mighty right hand and save. And that hope was built on nothing less than the name of the Lord. You remember the people didn't trust in weaponry, chariots and horses, but rather in the character and promise of God that He would make His enemies fall. Well, now in Psalm 21, There is a reflection on God's answer to prayer from Psalm 20 and His intervention. God had heard. He had helped. He gave victory. 
While His people looked to Him alone, He intervened for their good. And now the strength of the Lord has become their song. Maybe you remember that phrase from Moses' celebration anthem in Exodus 15. How the Lord is celebrated as being strong. That's not directly quoted in our psalm, but you see the notion of celebrating Yahweh's strength and exalting in His great salvation. Doesn't it sound like Exodus 15, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. It's a celebration anthem. Well, now David likewise, like Moses, is teaching Israel to praise the power of God, His strength and His mercy. And the psalm before us falls into two parts. First, David will look back with thanksgiving to the strength the Lord put on display. And then second, David will look forward to the day when the fullness of God's strength, that is the fullness of His kingdom, comes to crush His enemies. So see two things with me. And we begin in verses 1-7 to with the exaltation of the king. Now David starts with the same completely God-centric attitude that he had in Psalm 20. The famous declaration, Psalm 20 and verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. When like manner here, David's praise is totally focused on Yahweh. Look at verse 1. O Yahweh, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation, in this case, a deliverance in battle, how greatly he exalts. And that verb exalt pictures literally going round and round. It, it seems to be celebratory movement as one is in an overwhelmed state at the greatness of his salvation. It's hard not to remember Miriam leading the ladies of Israel with tambourines and singing as they rejoice in the victory at the Red Sea. That's the scene here. But why is David so excited? Well, it's not because he had dominated the enemy with his brilliant battle plan. You know, this isn't like the interview with the athlete after the game talking about the great game plan, the execution, how awesome I played, that great pass I threw, or the great pitch I threw, or the home run I hit, and so forth. David is saying, Yahweh did it all. Now, that doesn't mean David didn't have a battle plan. He had asked the people to pray. If you look at verse 4 of Psalm 20, May He, the Lord, grant your heart's desire, that is the king's heart's desire, and fulfill all your plans. David had plans, but his praise is for the Lord alone because the Lord did it. The Lord showed His delivering power and He gets all the praise. David would agree with the Reformation slogan, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And brethren, this here, David... He's teaching us really two principles, at least two principles. One, petitions answered must be followed by thanksgiving. Petitions answered must be followed by thanksgiving. And then second, whatever we do, however much we plan and we work, we do it all by the empowerment, the strength of our God. Paul puts that principle to the Colossians saying that while he labors to preach Christ, 
and to present people mature at the last day, Colossians 1.29, for this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works in me. Paul's saying the Lord gives me the strength and therefore the Lord gets the praise. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. The Lord Jesus appeared to me as one untimely born. I'm the least of all the apostles, but I labored more than all of those guys, though not I, but the grace of God that's working mightily within me. He praises God for strength given. Well, do we praise our God like this? Do we look at our labors and boast of what we've accomplished from the mundane to the complex, from the energy needed to do household chores, school children, labor in the yard, to the wisdom exercised to give counsel, to share the gospel, to teach the people of God? Do we look at all that and congratulate ourselves? Wasn't I so smart? in the way I communicated that biblical principle. Look at my great strength and how I've done all these things in the yard. Or do we praise the Lord? He did it through me. He gave me the energy. He gave me the insight. He manifested His strength and praise be to God. Further, David returns thanks because God has answered prayer. And brethren, do we return thanks when God answers our prayers? We're often really good at bringing God all of our crises. But do we follow through with thanksgiving when the Lord has heard and intervened? Thankfulness, gratitude for God's mercies and God's help isn't just a good idea like saying thanks to your mother for supper. It's commanded. Colossians chapter 1, Paul prays that we would with joy give thanks to the Father. Colossians chapter 2, Paul exhorts that we would walk in Christ abounding with thanksgiving. Colossians 3.17, Paul directs us, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then Colossians 4 verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with, you guessed it, thanksgiving. Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. It's not just a day on our calendar. It's a pattern of life for the believer. It's a command. Well, are we doing it? Beloved, also see here that giving thanks actually builds our faith. David right here can specifically look at a particular situation and say, verse 2, you, Lord, have given me the king, you've given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Lord, you have shown yourself to be a God who answers particular requests. You've demonstrated that you listen, that you know the longings of my heart and you fulfilled them. And that means in the future, when David is again in crisis, and if you've read anything of David's life, he seems to always be in crisis, but when the battle is going to be before David again, what does he know about the Lord? He knows that God cares, God listens, God helps, even answering the specific desires of my heart. So what do you think David's going to do the next time? He's going to pray. Sure, we know that our heart's desires can be off kilter. We know that our selfish motives can enter in and color what we're praying. We can be blind to our selfishness. We can pray for things that aren't God's will. But the point here 
is that God sees to the depths of our heart. He sees and hears our longings from the heart for things that please Him. And He gives us stuff that we don't deserve. He fulfills our desires. He satisfies us. These blessings, as Samuel Rutherford would put it, are kisses from heaven. When the Lord hears a very specific request, the cry of the heart, and He answers us. And when we see the Lord do that, our faith should grow tenfold. It's like pouring water on that magic snow. Have you ever seen this stuff? It's like powder. It looks like nothing. You put water on it and it grows to be this puffy snow. Well, that happens to our faith when we see God answer a specific prayer and we give thanks to Him. And in answer to this specific prayer, that should drive David to even greater thanksgiving. The hymn writer, Jochum Neander, in his great hymn, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, he gets this. And he says in his song, I believe it's the second verse, Praise to the Lord, who over all things so wondrously reigneth, shelters thee under His wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Has thou not seen how thy desires e'er have been granted in what He ordaineth? When I sang that song for the first time, and I didn't sing it until I get to seminary because I didn't grow up Presbyterian, it blew my socks off. God answers the desires of my heart as I bring them to Him. And for that, we must praise His name and praise His strength and praise His grace. And then David continues. Only now it seems he begins to expand on the specifics of what the Lord did in answering prayer. What did the Lord do? Well, the king rejoices in you, O Lord, verse 3, for you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. David, in this victory, it seems, is receiving a trophy of the battle, perhaps a crown belonging to another king who had attacked him. But it's the Lord, David is saying, who gives the prize of war. There's actually a story about this in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where David gets a crown weighing 75 talents that's really heavy and it's placed upon his head. But David doesn't say, look at my great battle prowess that I get this. The Lord has put this crown on me. God is crowning me as the exalted king. Now, when King Saul, David's predecessor, had scored victories over people like the Philistines or the Amalekites, what did Saul do in response? He didn't write a psalm praising God. 1 Samuel 15, verse 12, Saul set up a monument to himself. Look at me. Look at my great power. How different here is David, the man after God's own heart? who even when he is crowned in victory, he says, Yahweh, crown me. And not just that, verse 4. He, the king, asked life of you, Yahweh, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. In other words, the Lord preserved David's life through the horrors of battle. But the Lord didn't do just that. He gave David a promise, length of days forever and ever. Now that should perplex you because you know that David himself will die. 
In fact, God never promised David specifically that he wouldn't face the corruption of the grave. However, the Lord did promise David in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, that a son of David, a seed from David's line, would inherit the throne forever. God promised no matter what that son of David faced, that Yahweh's covenant love would never depart from him, and the Lord would establish the seed of David's throne and kingdom forever. He would wear a crown and gain victory over the greatest of foes. And if you reign forever, what's that mean you conquer? Death. Now, clearly this is looking beyond what David yet knows and can comprehend in fullness, but he's already seeing great David's greater son. It's already looking to Luke chapter 1, the day when the angel Gabriel will say to Mary that her child conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit will be God's son to inherit the throne of his father David. And what's the next word? Forever. It's impossible to read of this crowning of David and fail to see that David is just a picture, a glimpse of God's coming reign in Jesus Christ. And yet, there's also vast implications for the people of God. Do you remember Psalm 8? Yeah, probably not. You remember how... How majestic is your name, O Lord, right? You remember the psalm talking about what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you should care for him, that you've yet made him a little lower than the angels, but you crown him with glory and honor. That was Adam's condition. But what happened with Adam crowned with glory and honor? Well, he corrupted it all in his sin. All things were placed under Adam's feet and he threw it all away in his rebellion and we fell with him. Yet God's purposes for man, for kingly man, were not lost in the garden. It was a declaration of hope of a snake crusher, a kingly champion who would come in that line from Adam and would then be exalted. And the Lord, through His covenant promises, has spoken of this coming champion multiple times in the Old Testament. Maybe we remember Jacob's words to his son Judah that a lion from the tribe of Judah would come. A king who would carry a scepter and to him would be the obedience of the peoples. Or maybe we remember Hannah's prayer as she presents Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, that the Lord would give strength to His king and exalt the horn of His anointed, His Messiah. There are many other texts looking forward to God's great king being crowned in victory. And while David can't see the fullness of that coming to pass in Jesus Christ in his particular moment, he is foreshadowing that particular victory. What is this psalm teaching us? It's saying that David's victory that Yahweh gave to him is a taste of coming messianic triumph. In the midst of this world of humiliation, a place where enemies can easily and quickly prevail over us. And in fact, the enemy should prevail because of our sin. It's what we deserve. We deserve the curse. And part of the curse, Deuteronomy 28, is being crushed by your enemies. But God has chosen to bless, to exalt graciously anyway. He's lifted up the king. And he's been pleased, David says, verse 5, to make his glory, David's glory, great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you, you bestow upon him. Verse 6, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. 
the greatest gift that David has received in this victory is not the victory itself. It's God's very presence. The Lord in this victory has come near to David and it thrills David's heart. But doesn't it also echo what David wrote of the Messiah? Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. David is experiencing the nearness of God in the battle, but the day will come when the Father will give David's Son, the Lord Jesus, victory over death. He will be most blessed forever. And in that day, though he was far from God, or at least he felt far from God, he was crowned not with this triumphant crown, but crowned with thorns. He took blows for us. He was pierced. He was regarded as one smitten by God and under the curse. He even cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet what happened? Well, he died and it appeared all hope was lost. But he was not abandoned in the grave. His life was preserved. He was raised on the third day. He was exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He was ushered into the joyous presence of his father sitting down at his right hand. He was blessed forever. And do you see, David's victory here by God's grace is forecasting this forever victory, also an answer to prayer, that comes for Jesus Christ. And brethren, while this whole psalm tells us of David's benefits and it reflects on Jesus and the benefits that come to him, it also tells us of the hope that we have. Pastor John mentioned last week, it's kind of an abstract and hard point to make, that Israel's hopes are wrapped up in King David. It's really simple. If David loses the battle, what happens to Israel? Well, they fall. Well, isn't the same true for us in Jesus Christ? You ever read the Gospels with attention that's really there? When Jesus goes into the wilderness, driven, thrust out by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, if he fails, we're doomed. All of our hopes are hanging on Christ. And as the pressure is mounting throughout the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry, the, the pressure intensifying, all of our hopes are laid up there in Jesus. But what happens? He conquers for us. And His victory is our victory. And then Jesus doesn't just kind of drip the blessings on us. You get a little drop of the honey from the rock. No, we are lavish with grace. We too are raised up together with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. We are blessed forever. We are ushered into victory that will never fade. We are made glad in God's very presence. We have the joy of being with the Lord because Christ ushers us into the very presence of God. This is the grand conclusion of the Bible, Revelation 21.3. The dwelling place of God is with man and He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be their God. What should all of these blessings do for us? Well, the blessings that David yet can't see the end of, but he looks at, he eyes it, and he says it already has an effect on me. What is it? Verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord 
And through the steadfast love, the chesed, the covenant love of the Most High, the king shall not be moved. David personally is steadied by the steadfast love of God, the dogged determination of God's covenant faithfulness. That enables David to stand firm in the faith. It also assures David that the promises of the covenant of a forever king from David's line will come. There will be exaltation for David's house and salvation for God's people. Now, history will show us that David's kingdom, at least temporarily, falls into disrepair through generations of sons who don't follow David. They give either half-hearted obedience or no obedience. And it will lead to the corruption of David's crown. Jerusalem will be ransacked. The temple will be destroyed. The people will go into exile. And yet, what will Yahweh do? He will cause a shoot to spring from the stump of Jesse. He will bring a greater David and make his light shine on a people in darkness. He will give a Savior. And why will he do that? It's not because of David. We can read the record of his sin. It's not because of David's sons. There are a few bright spots, but they're pretty rare. And generally speaking, these are a pathetic bunch of compromisers. God will act because of His steadfast love. His love never fails. Isn't that what Jeremiah declares? Lamentations 3. This I remember, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And dear friends, I have a, a simple message to tell you tonight. God hasn't changed. Those mercies are for us. And what effect should it have upon our souls? We are steadfast as we look at the faithfulness of God because His covenant love will not fail. The exaltation of the King. But then secondly, see with me, the evisceration of God's enemies. The evisceration of the enemies. This victory in battle, in answer to prayer, and its connections to the coming Davidic king, it now moves David to look forward to a final triumph, a day of total victory over the enemy. Now, the Old Testament covenant promises anticipated this. Hannah, again, in her prayer for Samuel 2, she spoke of the day when the Lord would judge the peoples, when the wicked would be cut off, when they would be broken, these adversaries would be broken into pieces. Or there's Balaam's prophecy, it's quite a gripping one, that the Lord would have this scepter, well, first he says it's a star coming from Jacob, and then a scepter coming from Israel who will crush the forehead of Moab. Pretty frightening, isn't it? The king wielding a scepter to break skulls. Gives a head-smashing perspective on the last day, doesn't it? David's victory here makes him long for the final day when the Lord will bring full deliverance. So he begins to describe it. Verse 8, Your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. And you should really pay attention to the repetition of the verb find out there. It's interesting, isn't it? In battle when things are going terribly for the enemy, what does the enemy start doing? He runs. He tries to find places to hide. There's this scene in the movie Hacksaw Ridge. This is not a recommendation. It's just a statement about it. 
It's a true story of a Seventh-day Adventist, Desmond Dawes, who refused to kill, misunderstanding, I think, the Ten Commandments. And he serves as a medic. And it's a story about him saving lives on this particular ridge on a dreadful Pacific island. The Americans had taken the ridge, or so they thought, but then at night the Japanese come out of the, the holes that they had dug into the ground, numerous tunnels, and as day breaks they charge the American soldiers and they drive them off the ridge. Desmond doesn't get off the ridge. He stays to start saving people. And there's a moment when the Japanese have come out and they're driving their bayonets into bodies to make sure people are dead. And Desmond has taken one of the guys that he's found and he intends to save and he's hidden him in the dirt. The only thing that's visible of this guy is his right eye. And then Desmond himself hides under a body. It's horrible, but it works. They avoid death. No such clever tactic will work on the day when the Lord Himself comes to find out His enemies. The foe may run into a house to hide under furniture, yet Zephaniah 1.12 teaches that the Lord in His judgment will search Jerusalem with lamps. What a striking picture. God will bring His torch into every house and search the nook and crannies and you will not get away. Or enemies will run from the battlefield to hide into the night, but Nahum 1.8 says the Lord will pursue His enemies into darkness. No one will get away as a straggler. Or maybe the enemies will crawl into holes in the ground and caves and try to make the rocks their hiding place. But Revelation 6 tells us that the rocks will not be able to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. He will find out His enemies. And doesn't this say something about enemies within? Israel always had enemies within, whether they be Saul the king or Judas in Jesus' day. But traitors won't get away. The Lord will unveil hypocrites and crush them. If anyone is just toying with religion, maybe putting on airs in our midst, portraying self as a person of piety, but only a pretender. The Lord knows. Take heed. Your sin will find you out. The King will hunt you down. That is a terrifying thing if you're a hypocrite. But it's a liberating truth if you're a believer. You won't be in a position when the enemy suddenly springs out and grabs you. I'm not a fan of horror flicks, of scare tactics, but don't we all know kind of how these things work? Somebody's hiding and they're going to jump out and get you. Well, that won't be the case in the last day. There won't be some enemy hiding who will be able to get to us because the Lord brings His sword down upon them all. We won't be in a situation in the glorious future where enemies hang around like the stories of Japanese soldiers still hiding out in the jungles for five, six, seven years after the war is over. No, in that day, Yahweh will have made a complete end of them. And this statement is made as one of certainty in the faith. No hater of God will be around. The sheep of the Lord, our Good Shepherd, the sheep will be able to lie down and nothing to make them afraid. Ezekiel 34 pictures it. Or Isaiah 35, another prophetic image. On the king's highway, the redeemed will go home to Zion and no lion will be there or a ravenous beast. What's that mean? All threats are gone. That is a joyous day. 
And I tell you, if you were a Christian right now in Israel, this would give you an entirely different perspective. Oh, the peace that can come to the soul when every enemy against the people of God is gone. That's what David is celebrating. And then in verse 9, he begins to talk about when this will happen and how we can be sure that the victory will be total. David says of the Lord, verse 9, you will make them, the enemies who hate the Lord, you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will consume them. This great victory will happen when the Lord appears. Isaiah 40 pictures it as there's a day coming when the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Interestingly, around that verse in Isaiah 40 are verses talking about the first coming of Jesus and verses talking about the second coming of Jesus. It's the already not yet concept, isn't it? King Jesus comes in glory. And how do we know it's glorious? Because what are the angels singing when Jesus comes? Glory to God in the highest. And yet the glory of the Lord is veiled. But after Christ's victory and ascension, He reminds us He will return in glory. In fact, Paul, I think, has this very psalm, Psalm 21 in mind, when he writes to comfort the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1. He says, look, brothers, the day will come when these gospel enemies afflicting you will be themselves afflicted. Here's what he says. God is just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And when will this happen, Paul? When will relief come? It will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed or when He appears from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's a day for the enemies of fire. Fire will consume them like a blazing oven. It's a day of eternal destruction. Not that the enemies will be annihilated. They will rather, as Jesus said, experience a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And yet the point of David's language here is meant to tell us the victory will be total. The Lord will strike down all of our foes. They're swallowed up. It's the same verb used in number 16 of when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram stood against Moses. And what did the Lord do? He actually opened the earth and swallowed them up. And then there's a connection to that story in the next verse, verse 10. Even their descendants, their offspring will be destroyed. Cathan, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they went down into the earth with their rebellious families. Achan, likewise, that thief in Jericho who brazenly rebelled against the Lord, he was stoned with his household. What's the point? The Lord is rooting out all evil. None will be left. We're not going to experience the horrifying story of the grandson of some enemy that we had coming back to kill us all. Wouldn't that, isn't that some novel somewhere? I'm sure it is. There won't be an enemy left. The descendants of wicked men will be gone. God will make a total end of the foes. Unless we think the slaughter of these evil people and their descendants is somehow shady, verse 11 reminds us the whole thing is just. These people and their children plan evil against the Lord. They devise mischief. They are not innocent. They're scoffing at God's authority. They're saying of Messiah, we don't want this man to rule over us. 
They are bold-faced in their wickedness. And as the wickedness keeps bubbling up, the Lord will squash it. And brethren, in that, David rejoices. The wicked are not going to succeed. Verse 11, For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. In other words, the victory will be overwhelming. In Tolkien's imagery, I used this this morning in Sunday school. I come to it again. When Gandalf the White, who's the returning Christ figure, when he crests the mountain at Helm's Deep after a, a night of fighting where it appeared the orcs were going to win, the orcs representing everything that's evil and the demonic. But suddenly as Gandalf the White crests the hill, the light of the sun bursts onto the scene and the enemies are totally routed. That's the picture. There won't be a, a driving off of enemies temporarily into the mountains like terrorists in the Middle East. The Lord will take all of them who are perpetrating evil and drive them to destruction. So what Ralph Davis has called the dark side of the kingdom of God. But it's only dark if you're in the darkness, rebelling against God's king. For us who believe, brethren, this is a day of light. It's a day of deliverance. It's a day when we will experience peace in God's world when the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. What is that wonderful name from Isaiah 9-6 that Messiah is called? The Prince of Peace. He makes wars to cease. Why does He do that? Because He breaks the rod of the oppressor. He takes the battle to the enemy and He stamps it out. It's what we long for when we pray, Thy kingdom come. When Jesus comes, He will secure us forever. And there will be no more darkness, no sorrow, no sighing, no grief, no pain, no enemies, no death, no curse. And if that doesn't stir your heart, I frankly don't know what will. How can you not be excited about such a day? Sure, we, we're called to pray now that our enemies would stop being enemies. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. But we also pray that enemies on the rampage would meet God's justice. Arise, O Lord, and put your enemies to flight. Are you longing for that day? It's not that we delight in the death of the wicked. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. But we delight in the exercise of His justice to establish righteousness in the earth. And as we look around tonight at our broken, corrupted, messed up world, are we not grieved? at the unrighteousness that we see, at how justice is far from us. Rapists and murderers walk free. Liars are spewing their filth. Secularists are always attacking the church. Jihadists are terrorizing the saints. And on and on we could go. Does that not stir in us a desire to see the Lord put all things right and to shut the door on evil forever? David longs for it. And as he pleads in triumph, he closes crying. Verse 13, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. When the Lord returns, brethren, when He manifests His great power to punish enemies and give us peace, what will we do? Revelation 19 says four times that we'll sing Hallelujah. The true Hallelujah chorus. 
Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. And thus begins the marriage supper of the Lamb. May we start the song now, because we know it's assured through the victory of Jesus Christ. And may we have a longing for the day to come when the kingdom will be here in fullness. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we come and we praise You that You are a prayer-hearing and answering God and that we know because of Your covenant love that Your promises will all come to fruition. We know, O Lord, that Christ already reigns and He will manifest His reign among men and He will bring all enemies to an end. Lord, as we eye that day with the eye of faith, would You give us the confidence to stand to You and to sing to Your praise and to long even for the day when we will be granted relief from all of this world of trouble. O Lord, come near to us. Prepare us for that day when You will wipe every tear away from our eyes. And give us hope in You, our great triumphant victor. For we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen.